Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Before we begin, I want to give a content warning. This episode involves discussion of the sexual exploitation and abuse of a child. Listener discretion is advised. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to my series exploring the disturbing case of Dale Klutzy the Clown Rancor. In prior episodes, you've heard a discussion that provided an overview of this story, as well as a talk that focused specifically on the experiences of the filmmakers who produced a documentary about the now-disgraced children's entertainer years prior to his arrest. Tonight, we'll again explore the disturbing story, but in a way I had not expected. I'll be honest right off the top, this is likely the darkest and the most disturbing episode of the 200-plus that have been released on Nighttime. What you're about to hear is a detailed account of how Dale, Klutzy the Clown Rancourt, groomed, isolated, and controlled a 15-year-old girl, ultimately placing her in a role that blended the roles of child laborer and sex slave. In our prior episode, we heard the crimes recounted by way of the agreed statement of facts that were included with Mr. Rancourt's guilty plea. But as you're soon about to hear, that's just one side of the story. For me... It started like this. Hello there. This is me, the victim of Dale Rancourt, also known as Clutzy the Clown. I would really like to go on your podcast and get the truth out there because I have been harassed ever since the situation happened because of the lies that were put out there. And I want people to speak up and not stay in those situations. <laughs> As someone who has followed this story since the charges were announced, I've known little to nothing about Klutzy's victim and about the circumstances that placed him in a position to sexually abuse the 15-year-old girl. Well, we're about to hear that story now, and it's truly horrific. Before we begin, I should explain that some details of this case, specifically the identity of Dale Rancourt's victim, is rightly protected by a publication ban. Due to this, I've disguised her voice and will simply refer to her as Jane Doe. So with that said, let's get into it. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, we will be joined by Jane Doe, who will speak publicly for the first time about the disturbing story of Dale Klutzy the Clown Rancourt. Specifically, what Dale did to her. Most shocking allegations tonight against a man who for more than 20 years has built a business, indeed a reputation, as a children's clown and entertainer here in Cape Breton. Dale Rancourt, better known as Klutzy the Clown, made a very brief court appearance this afternoon in Sydney on four sex-related charges involving a minor. Like, as someone from Cape Breton and 
aware of Klutzy's story and the crime he committed against you. I've known a lot about the crime, but I've never known your identity. And I don't think anyone else has. Like, has the publication ban been a good thing for you? Um, yes and no. Like, I, I'd make, if I'd comment somewhere else and then the person would be like, you are a clown fucker. So, you know, so some people do know. But because right when they say that, I can't say nothing back because of the because of the ban. If I do, if I say this or that, then I can get in trouble myself for it. Oh, and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. It's kind of a good thing and a bad thing because not everybody knows, but the, the people that do get to get away with oh. asking me, and I can't defend myself. Oh wow, yeah, I never thought of that aspect of it. And I guess if anyone says something publicly like that to you. They could get in trouble, but really, it's like, is it worth the trouble to just go after every like idiot on Facebook who says your name or something? So I guess, yeah, I, I could see how th that may feel a little like you got your hands tied behind your back. But for the most part, like, do people know who you are and your connection to like to, to Klutzy being his victim? Like other than, you know, really close friends or family, I do many, like would many of your peer group or people in your community know who you are and, and that you were the victim? Oh, there's not many, no. Um, there's a very select few, but with comments being public, I do believe more than I think knows actually knows. Mm, okay. Well, um, again, I'm calling you Jane, which is going to be uncomfortable as we go. But Jane, let's let's start at the beginning and tell me a bit about your life before you met and got involved with uh, Dale Klutzy Rancor. Like what just like kind of set the scene of of what your life was like when, when you met Dale Klutzy Rancourt? Um, Definitely before I met Mr. Rancourt. I was happy. I was funny. I was majorly outgoing and have fun. But after meeting him and the situation started happening, my friends slowly went away because I started to walk more. Mm. Um, I was a happy mother. And that was my life. That was everything I wanted to be. And it slowly fell apart as I met him. Mm. And... and it, it just so I get a, an idea too is um you would would you have you have would have met him and started working for him when you were fourteen? Uh yes, I started working with him when I was fourteen, but I knew him beforehand. Like, but I never really talked to him longer than like ten minutes because he is my grandmother's best friend. I understand. Okay, in uh, you talked about at that time when you were fourteen, being you know like a proud mother. How old were you when you had your your first child? Was it when you were fourteen? I uh, I was pregnant with him when I was fourteen and had him at the age of fifteen. Wow, that must have been a big challenge. I had my first child when I was, you know, over thirty, and it was such a a big change. I can't imagine dealing with that at you know at at that age. What was that like? Just uh, given everything else you've you've gone through, what was it like having a child that young? Uh, some people would think that it is hard and think that I wouldn't be able to take responsibility. But honestly, I could never be more blessed to have such a great responsibility and growing with a child while still being able to act like a child myself because I got to sit around and play with toys and go to the park with them still. Mm -hmm. So we were growing together. And in my eyes, that's the greatest bond that 
a child and mother could build together. Oh, that's that's beautiful. Well, I understand a part of this story is that you had a bit of like a complicated or volatile home life. Can you can you talk a little bit about that side of things? Because I think that plays into you ending up living at at his house. Like, what was home life like for you? Um, I had every need that I had. Like, they won't, they didn't neglect me, nothing like that. There was just a lot of fighting and arguing. And while I was working with Mr. Rancourt, um, it would get, when I would talk to him about the things that would happen at home and the things that has been said, he would tell me, oh, well, then they're not your, your good family. Like, he manipulated me into believing that they were these bad people because we fight and because this and that didn't happen when it should have happened. And, um, which caused me to love me and him to believe that my family weren't the greatest. Mm. And then, and go to, we talked to children's aid about me going now and children's aid agreed with it because, but I didn't get my chance to talk and tell like children's aid what's happening at home or anything. He would say everything Mm. like he would speak for me. I'd never got to say word myself. Okay, well, we'll get back to that. But let's start at, the, at with this is, um, you mentioned you, you knew him uh, through a, a connection with him being friends with your grandparents. How did you like as a, you know, 14, 15 year old, how did you end up starting to work for him? Um, well, I can't quite remember how I began. I think I walked in one day because I lived on the same road as his business. Mm-hmm. Um, there in Sydney. And it was literally like just four or five doors down it was wasn't far i'm not living there anymore but i just walked down one day after passing it a bunch of resumes and he was the last place i passed it a resume to and he gave me an interview right on the spot because i was a family family friend mm-hmm. and uh and he said okay I'll, I'll call you shortly and the next day i got a call and he said well we have an opening to do volunteer work and then so I started to do volunteer work and where it was a kid friendly place, I was able to bring my child with me. So in my eyes, that's a plus plus. I don't lose time with my kid and I get to do something that kills my time that could hopefully go on my resume to get a better job. But then he decided to hire me for birthday parties mm-hmm. and and I started attending them to uh, make money, which mm, my eyes I was excited about because I finally got my first job and I was like I can help my parents with paying bills and getting groceries and stuff and also buy my kid extra things that he wants Mm -hmm. and when you say like working birthday parties like what would you have been doing for for his business like what would the job have been uh well those multiple different things um setting up bouncy castles but basically moving them from his office loading it into his vehicles uh, transporting it to the birthday parties, blowing it up, and taking it down. But after we blow it up, we were dressed in the costumes, play with the kids, do everything that is needed. Basically, you go in a costume, walk around, play with the kids, and make sure your head don't fall off on the costume. <laughs> because that has happened. <laughs> um, poor kids are traumatized. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. And uh, one thing I have to ask is the um, you talked about walking into his business. Are you talking about the – he had – I've always called it his fun house, but it was kind of, I don't know if it was like an indoor kind of playhouse sort of thing that was um, on Welton Street. I called it his fun house. Is that the business you were talking about? Um, Is that between Welton Street and Victoria Road? 
Yeah, like kind of like out yeah. toward near the overpass to the pier. What, 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 how, I've always called it as fun house, and I thought it was like you could just like drop your kids off there and they could go in and play or something. What was that place? Uh, you could do that, but like the parents have to stay there while they go and play and stuff like that. Uh, but basically, you could have attend like birthday parties, yeah, like book your birthday parties there, or have it booked at the residence or a hall, and he'll go and attend and oh, okay. bring his own equipment. But he did have like a little gaming room set up with like he would have these really old uh game cubes and stuff like that for kids to play with and another room for smaller kids which he had like a race car uh like elena mcqueen race car toy box filled with toys and Weird. Okay. a bunch of other toys yeah what, what is it like a strange like and i've always thought that was such a strange business when every time i went by there i was like that place is so weird but i could see as like if you live near there that's and you're passing out resumes and i know what the job prospects are like in in sydney for you know for a, a teenager to get work that that could be a you know a good opportunity to get something but again as you said it started off with volunteer work which i'm assuming you weren't paid for but then you would start working the birthday parties and whatnot and that was when you were actually standing to make some money um i understand that the inappropriate behavior started from from mr rancor to you started slowly and started through work can you can you talk a bit about how like the how he started being inappropriate with you like how did that begin uh yeah it's, it actually like slowly started with the process of i would do birthday parties which when i started to being paid to do the jobs after a while he would stop like giving me money for certain jobs like i started off with like him taking like half the amount of money i was supposed to have and then going to nothing and so i would ask him about it and he was just like oh well there's other ways that you can get paid for working and i'm like that would make me feel quite uncomfortable um and i would like he said that he was joking i would take i thought he was joking because like in my household we've always had inappropriate jokes all my life mm -hmm. and it's just seemed to be normal humor to me but it slowly started to progress into something more interactive like physically interactive that he would randomly like gently like touch behind me at the bottom of my back and then the next day would be even lower and then lower and it would just begin the random touching and um i was like okay well i need to keep making money because i would feel bad if i just quit and stop helping my family out with paying bills and groceries and everything like that so i continued to stay not thinking anything of this mm -hmm. how did you like at at this point as like a you know a, a child like how did you view him and like did you see him as your friend or your your boss like what was like how did you look at him i actually at first i just pictured him as a normal boss someone that was helping me out get to where i need to be at in life by having a stable job that would hopefully be a long-term job and after me working for him for a while uh, he was he was starting to be super helpful and super nice at first that I began to think of him as like another second father figure to me, how I had my regular dad, but like another father figure that was there to support me and help me through everything that I need to get done in life. Okay. Um, and, and that kind of leads us to the situation that has you living with him for a period of time. And that's when this 
story really gets gets horrifying is you're a young mother who starts volunteering then starts working for him how did you like what what led to you living at his house how did that happen uh well there was a physical uh, phys physical altercation at home between um i can't remember if it was me and my father or me and my mother um but i was um holding my son and one of, and I think I'm pretty sure it was my father that he pushed me over, and I talked to Mr. Wayne quote about it, about what happened at home, and um, he said that was inappropriate and stuff. And then the next day that we were going into children, child welfare, so we went out, and he was like, "Okay, you're going to go in, and you're going to tell them everything that's been happening at home that you've been telling me." And when we went in the next day, we walked into children's aid, and he began talking. And I never got to say a word. Uh, he was just like, those are these altercations that keep happening at home, that she's not safe there. I'm going to be taking her at my house, and I don't want anything to happen. Uh, me getting accused, falsely accused of having an underage mind in my house, but I just wanted to inform you that I'm here to help this girl get back on her feet and be into a safe environment. And basically, Chonze was like, yeah, who cares? Let's get out of our office. Basically, what they did. And... So I began living with them, and everything was fine at first, like nothing really went down until after a while. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You, you had this altercation or situation with your, your parents. Uh, your boss, Dale Klutzy Rancourt, uh, encouraged you uh, to go to Children's Aid. When you go in, he kind of took control of it and did a lot of the talking. And, did, and it's like, as you described it, it sounds like he was all, almost saying, like, you know, in case anyone says anything, like, I'm just letting you all know that I'm taking this minor to to live with me like they didn't arrange for you to move there he just went in to kind of like tell them i'm you know taking her to my house is that yep that's literally what he did in and jones they didn't stop it or anything they and i don't even think that they did like a like a full investigation immediately until after the uh physically he started doing physical sexual activities with me that i got mentally unstable over and my only way of thinking i can leave is if i harm myself mm. and so then they got involved and okay. so they really started an investigation mm. and uh, then yet they wanted me to stay there after that though so it was really messed up situation yeah and, and when you first moved in with him um your your parents were aware like they knew where you were were going and i guess they knew who he was and that you were working for him yep did your child go as well? Oh uh, yes. Okay. And we won't get into the specifics of this, but the abuse went from the comments and occasional inappropriate touching to something much more serious at the time that you were living with him. How did 
tell me and you just talked about trying to get help and trying to make this stop walk me through the different things you did and different places you went to to eventually get this to stop you mentioned maybe and you can explain the children's aids involvement again as you as you talk me through what you did to to get out of this situation honestly um I tried to talk to Children's Aid about it, but I had no like other way into Children's Aid other than him taking me. Oh, okay, um, yeah. So Gosh. I would go in and I'd want to say something and I would kind of give her like a look and just like stay out dead out of face. Like something's going on here. And she say so they would just not want to listen to me. They were just listening to the adult in the room because I am a child. They don't want to listen to what I had to say really because he was taking the, the, the main just taking control but, of it as yeah. there. And, and what what things would you have been going to children's aid for like what would have brought you into there with him if you can give me any idea oh uh, basically i would be like oh well we because he was talking about trying to get like a funding through children's aid for helping me and i'm like well i'm and then when i was living with them i was completely looking for no money whatsoever like by that time i was not receiving any money i was doing labor for free and but then I was living with them. I was like, well, me walking kind of pays off some of those bills oh. like, for living with them. Okay. And like we didn't take up much space because like I was receiving the child tax benefit. So needs were taken care of. It was just like mine that will miss you. Mm-hmm. Um, OK, so you, you would go through these various uh, interactions with child services or Children's Aid Society or whatnot. Um, did do you recall ever like you and you just discussed like um or, or mentioned the idea of like staring at it giving them weird looks and you know trying to signal that something is not right what else like what went on beyond that um i first talked to like other than trying to get trons aid's attention which was failed attempts mm-hmm. but um i talked to my oldest sibling and um basically i tried to explain the situation and it escalated out of proportion really um i tried to explain like i first talked to her about when i had my suicide attempt um uh basically i tried to tell her what was going on why i did that and it escalated out of proportion she mixed up my words and said that i should talk to my parents about it and stuff and so i went and i talked to my parents and well really my mom and she ended up Flipping out, and the ghostbuster call you mentioned in your podcast before she broke the window of. And then my grandmother tried to accuse me of um, lying, that that stuff never happened, and that I basically I ruined people's lives. And my parents just from then on just seemed kind of distant. And so I didn't really have much support in the situation, but. Well, I would try to talk to my parents about it afterwards and they just wouldn't want to talk about it, what happened. And I couldn't explain like what was going on properly to them because they just seemed like they didn't want to hear it. Um, the, your mom breaking the window of the Ghostbuster car, what, what, was, what happened? What was the story? Well, well, after I talked to her about it, she took it as I wanted to be having a sexual relationship with them. But that wasn't what I was saying. I was like, I like, because my psychologist is, hey, uh, is it normal that sexual interactions are happening between 
me and my boss and just from right there she flipped she lost she was like oh it's okay it's okay like she she acted like it was normal she's like that happens all the time so i was like okay so it's normal okay and then she started asking about his his size of everything like that and i was like i don't know and um then about five minutes later after we go inside you see my mom running outside walking down the road and there was a birthday party going on in the process of this of her doing this and she got arrested i see you hopped up and just started wailing on the on the, the head the front of the car windshield wow. uh yeah um that situation now caused the police to be involved oh okay okay so this is what led this situation with the car is what led to the police finding out what happened uh yeah kind of in a way like i tried to talk to the cops and stuff but like my parents would be kind of trying to talk over and then i'd be like well i was having sexual interactions with him at his home while i was there like i didn't know probably what to say like i was like like and yeah basically and then i didn't talk to the cops at all after that really and then just gave my like statement to victim services and tried to explain what was happening to them because the people in there are a lot nicer and easier to deal with than the police but police are amazing they, mm. they help people it's i they have my full respect but the people in victim services are more comforting they mm. tell you like you can there's a confidentiality you can feel free to do whatever say whatever and and they do they are like physically supporting mentally supportive it was comforting more opening to give a better statement and in the court documents there's there's reference to like and I don't know how accurate this is, but there's this mention of like you tell your parents and then you call and record him admitting to to it over the phone. Did, did is that actually how it happened? The way it's described in the court documents? Um, no, I don't actually remember that ever happening. Oh, I remember prior to this stuff happening, there was like four of us in the room. There was me. Quartzy, Mr. Rancourt, and two other men. They were like his helpers and friends. Um, basically, one guy was there helping me because, like, in an argument, because I was upset over what was happening because it was one of the first times, like, he groped me and wanted to have sexual interactions with me. And this, and I was like, okay, so why are you manipulating me? Why are you turning my family against me? Because I talked to his friend about it and I was recording it all in the process of it. Oh. And so his friend was on his side, but one of his friends were trying to help me in the situation saying, no, it's not right. This shouldn't be happening. Even if um, I said, yes, this shouldn't have happened type of things like that. And I was like, I, like, I physically did not say like, I didn't like physically defend myself. I didn't push him away from me. I just was like, no, I don't think I want to. I, I don't think it's right. And it still continued to happen anyway. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of gave up on the fact like, this is what life is now. This is what's going to happen. But I don't recall another phone call happening. I remember him calling me and telling me, you have to come back now. Like, if you don't come back now, you're not going to see your kid, basically. And I'm like, okay. Tell me about about that, like the idea of him threatening to affect your ability to have your, your child. Well, basically, the only way I was even allowed to, after living with him, the only way that I was allowed to leave is if he was able to 
watch my son for me and everything like that. So that's why I never went to my parents or anything except for that one, like once or twice that I would be like, Hey, can you guys come down to the shop with me really quick? Cause there was only a few houses down. I'd be like, we can hang out there. There's something cool. We got to do stuff, you know, mm-hmm. just to kind of get people there to hang out with. So I don't feel alone and like, and stuff like that. So I can spend time with my kids and my family. But like, wow. I didn't really quite get the concept of like what he was doing that was manipulative until that guy talked to me about like hey he's manipulating you but then he would just say no i'm not i'm helping you remember these people are who you think they are i'm the one here trying to help you no one else Mm -hmm. so that's what i believed so his version of helping seemed to really be about control and getting you to his house getting you to work for free and yeah it's um it sounds like it has all the kind of trappings of what a predator would do to someone who is vulnerable and not to say you're like vulnerable in terms of a person, but it, uh, being a 15 year old child with a child yourself. Um, yeah, that's all of this is says it's like, it's so troubling to hear uh, every aspect of this. Now, when, when the police become involved, he's arrested, it's on the news um what was what was that like were you like were you freaked out when all this was kind of blowing up because this was a really big story at, at the time when when he was arrested how are you do you remember how you were feeling as all this was happening uh i felt petrified like he was going to like mr wanko himself was going to be upset with me and try to tell me that i'm wrong that i shouldn't told anybody I felt like since I spoke up and like talked to people that he was just going to like, basically, uh, I don't have a job no more. I don't have an income no more. I don't have support no more. Cause those things he put in my head is like, if he's not in my life and that's not like things I'm not going to have. And so I, I was petrified. I was scared that I was going to lose my friends, my family, that I was going to have nowhere to go. Uh, I thought just, I just thought I was going to be homeless, everything like that, because I was scared that my parents didn't want me over the situation that happened with Mr. Wanko and everything. Mm. And, but yeah. yeah and, and what about, like, I, I guess there wasn't necessarily a trial as he he pled guilty. Um, or actually, be, before I ask about this is, when he pleads guilty, there's a statement of facts, which I, in that episode that you listened to, I, I read most of the statement of facts where he describes what had happened do, do you take any issue with his version of what happened like it it sounds like you have a different side of the story than what came out in court uh yeah the, the things that he said some of the some of the things that he said and that was put into the the news ain't all true because they would say that there's been multiple occasions where there was uh intercourse between a number of 14 and 15 times and not all that it did not happen that many times Mm-hmm. Like there was mainly a select few times that he tried to get actual intercourse with me. Like all, all the other times, it was just like physical touching, not full blown like intercourse happening. And um, we don't need to go into any detail with that. Absolutely not. It's um. As far as the 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 
court and the legal actions and the court side of things, were, were you involved in that at all? Like, I guess where he pled guilty, they would just kind of read the statement of facts and the judge would make a sentencing decision. What what role did you play in, in the, the, the court actions? Uh, I actually had a choice to go to court and lead off my victim impact statement. I had, they said if I did want to go do that, I could have been behind a screen or on a video call or just have somebody read it out for me. And I chose to just let the judge read it herself or himself. I don't, I can't remember if it was a male or female judge, but, and I just decided to stay up in the victim services room every single time he went to court and talk to them. And there would be a person, I think there was two people talking to me, victim services that would go up and down, up and down between courts and between the breaks and stuff to come talk to me and say, well, this is what's happening. Do you, do you agree to this and that? And I was like, I, I guess so. Yes. Whatever you guys think is the best thing. I'm not sure. I don't understand what's happening here. Mm-hmm. And I definitely did not want to go up and face him because I was, I was petrified. <laughs> your, your victim impact statement do you, do you like have much memory of writing it? And is there any part of it you're comfortable sharing? Um, basically, I said, I thought that I could look up to you. You helped me through some things, but also uh, the worst thing that has happened. Um, me and my child needed support and loving and caring hand. And you said you could give it and you refused to do that. And But I couldn't get into detail like, you touched me there. You did this. I couldn't get into detail okay. like that because it, it goes against the victim services impacts policy thing. Okay. But, but basically, I could just say how it affected me, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, all right. And so you didn't actually have to come face to face with with Klutzy. Did uh, from the time that like from the time he got arrested to present, like you haven't seen him or been face to face with him during all this, have you? Uh, I have like really bad paranoia so like ever since like the things that has happened in my life i think that i saw him twice but i don't know if it was for sure him i'm pretty sure he's been staying in ontario i think it is okay but it was one day i saw a little green car just just driving uh down by value village if you guys know what value village is mm-hmm. and i was walking into the apartment complexes behind there and this car slowly drives by that looked exactly like him, had his glasses, same age group. And all I could do was panic. And I froze and I like my heart dropped. I felt like I was going to puke and I got really lightheaded. My vision dimmed and I just, I just stopped breathing. I, I, then I began to hyperventilate after not breathing for like a minute. <laughs> and then I was like, no, it's not him. And I just wow. continued on my day. I was like, that's not him. That's the only way I could tell myself, like, to snap out of it. I was like, that's not him. That's not him. And I just kept walking. <laughs> but I don't know for sure if it was or not. It just literally looked like him. Like, if he had a twin, that, that's his twin. Wow. What are your thoughts on, like, he get, he ended up getting a two-year prison sentence followed by two years of, like, probation or something. Um, what are your thoughts on on that as a sentence for what he did to you and what he put you through and how he took advantage of his position as your employer. Um, honestly, I don't know. Like I do believe it is absurd that it is only two years. Mm-hmm. I would rather have him have went longer, but 
the two years gave I hope I'm hoping the two years gave him the time to think of that he can't treat people the way that he does. He can't hurt people with manipulation and everything like that. I just that's like it's so hard because I don't know what it's like to be in jail. So like I've heard that it could be bad. I hope people are like, oh it's normal, but like I would imagine being trapped in a little cell is how I picture it. And if I was trapped in a cell for two years, I would go mentally insane. Mm -hmm. And I don't wish that upon anybody, even though the things he has done, I think I, it's a do and I don't think, uh, like I myself am not the type of person that'd be like, Hey, you belong in a tiny room for years. But at the same time, it's like, it's what he dissolves for what he did it's caused me a lifelong tome of hope that i can't get out of mm -hmm. um yeah I'm, i can imagine now, you, you talked about writing a victim impact statement that in that, that you would have done you know back just just coming out of this this abuse and still a child when you wrote it but several years have passed now and you're able to kind of look back with a bit more um context of how this has affected you so you've you've already brought it up a few times this idea of you're you're less social you're you're now paranoid um talk a bit about the impact that being abused as a child has has had on you now as a young adult uh i expect everybody to be like him i could be in the most happiest and healthy relationship and my paranoia alone will tell me over and over in my head he's gonna hurt you he's lying about who he is he's going to make sure that i end up alone or i'm going to end up with him forever in this cycle of torture and pain that i can't get out of those are the thoughts that go through my head ever since that's happened i don't know why uh, I have a hard time keeping friends because the people that I thought were family and friends of mine didn't treat me so much as like I was family or friends after the situation has happened. And it's, it's just, it's just Howard, you know? And I, I know you, there must be a lot of, therapy and whatnot that you hopefully are receiving like what support or services have you gotten over the years to help you you know deal with some of this stuff uh just canceling and that's all i got offered was literally just canceling and i unfortunately got a counselor that basically told me my dream job was unrealistic that i have to get a new one she would say the same thing every time i went in and like every single canceling session i've had to be completely honest, they need to fix the system. They're not that supportive. They'd say the same thing. Oh, everything will get better. It's just the same thing. Everything will get better. You're going to be fine. It's not a big deal. That's all they say every time. Mm -hmm. And so as a kid, I went to, I'm going to say her name's Mary. She was my counselor. And I would tell her about how I feel. And she'd be like, well, you shouldn't feel like that. And I'm like, I don't know why I feel like that, but I do. And then she had a stump for an arm, and I feel like she made the whole thing into a joke. But she, like, 
threw her arm up in the air that had the stub on it and said the handicap kids. So she really had a dark sense of humor and kind of laughed at some of the things I said to her and would make fun of herself. So I kind of think I should have been canceling her because there was one of the times she broke down crying in one of our sessions related to her relationship with her husband. Oh my God. And so I didn't get the best counseling session as a child that I should have got during the circumstances of what I what happened. Um, well, I'm, I'm, my, my jaws on the floor, this just sounds so like absurd and awful. Um, and like this, like the counseling and therapy, do you, do you feel like that had any effect or, or, or like what has been helping you get over this and get better? Or is it just, you're just kind of coming to terms with it or you haven't healed at all? Like how, like, do you feel like I, you're improving? I feel like I've been slowly improving. It's there are still days that it affects me more than others, but mm-hmm. for the most part, I think I'm doing a lot better than I used to be. Mm-hmm. And I've, come a long way um i learned to ignore everybody of what they think and i just try to stick to myself um and that's pretty much it you just have to think like i'm not alone if i have me that's kind of what i think i'm like i have me to talk to i have my book and i have my pen i can talk to my book and my pen all i want i'm gonna write down everything i feel and that's pretty much all i do to try to help myself feel better and I probably got a collection of books now. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry to interrupt the episode like this, but I want to take a moment and tell you about some bonus content I'm just about to post to the nighttime premium feed. But for those unfamiliar, let me remind you that there is in fact a separate and a much better nighttime podcast feed than the one you're listening to. What makes it better, you ask? Well, it's listener-funded, so there aren't any distracting ads like this or any of the others you've heard. Secondly, the episodes are often released in advance, sometimes by days. But most importantly, the premium feed includes exclusive episodes and content that you won't find here on the free feed. As an example, shortly after the release of this episode, I'll be adding a premium feed exclusive where I read and discuss the many, many emails I got from people willing to share their memories and experiences with Klutzy. If you're interested in this story, you won't want to miss that. I should also mention that all annual premium feed subscribers receive a free nighttime welcome pack that includes stickers, buttons, and magnets. If you're interested, you can go premium at patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash nighttime podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. You know, when you when you think back of like the situation you were in as a 14 and 15 year old getting groomed and then sexually abused by and manipulated and controlled by your 51 year old your 51 year old employer like if you thought about placing blame who do you think failed in letting you be in a position where you're subjected to this as a child like um honestly to be completely honest we all everybody in my eyes it's not just for one specific person it's mr Rand Colts, aka klutzy it's mine it's my parents and it is also children's aid because they should have expect i find children's aid took a big part in that because 
we went in and he said, hey, if anything happens, I have an underage girl living in my home that I wanted you to be aware about for my own safety. Mm. That kind of right there is like red flags over the top. See, like I, I think at me at that age, looking back at me now, I should have, I should have known better. Like what I tell myself now is like, I should have known better. I should have got out of that immediately. I shouldn't have went there. But at that time, for some reason, I did not know better. And well, I should have. You're a child. And it's like you, you talked about when he first got arrested, your reaction was like, seemed to be more worried about like losing your job and what's going to happen where like, I think um, as a, as a kid dealing, like you, you wouldn't be in a position to make decisions in that situation that you would now as a, you know, a 20 something. Um, so, yeah, and I, I don't want to dwell on this much, but you said when you think of blame, what do you mean by that? Like, what, what do you think you could have, should have done? Or like, how do you feel like it's your fault? Uh, I just feel like I should have stayed at home uh, with my family. I feel like I should have told someone sooner from the first comment he made to me. I feel like I should have just reported that immediately to my parents and explain he's having such awards to me. But I just, Basically, just wish I could have talked up, like talk to somebody, tell someone, like, "Hey, he's talking to me in a certain way that's unmanly for workplace." And mm-hmm. I, I don't know, just I feel like if I just made one choice of not passing in the resume that day, that I could have avoided all that. Mm, yeah, and the like him making these statements, um, the the way you describe it to me, it it sounds almost like like um very slow gradual thing and and it is and i think you you mentioned that earlier but is that how it worked like he was kind of started with just little inappropriate statements that slowly ramped up to you know becoming what it became yes um it did um but like like i said before like i'm used to sexual comments being in a jokingly manner Mm -hmm. because i grew up in that type of home where we always joked about that i was exposed to the sexual talk early, I think, or something. I don't even remember having the sex talk with my parents ever. But just they've always made sexual comments towards each other, like my mother and father. So, like, me seeing that in my eyes, I'm like, oh, that's normal. You know, that happens sometimes. It's funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and now just a, two other things. One is y- you, you talked about if you had like this idea of um you thought you may have seen him and you had what you described to be like a panic attack um is is that a, th- a thought in your head like are do you is is it oftentimes that you think like about him and running into him and thinking you're seeing him like does it still affect you that much present day not as much as it used to know uh but close to like the first year to two years after it happened it was really bad it was almost every day like, I did not want to leave the house most of the times. Mm-hmm. Um, um, like, I just, even though he was in jail, I felt like he wasn't, you know? Because, like, I would walk by his shop, and his shop would be there still, and I'd be like, he's in there, <laughs> but he's not actually in there. Um, mm-hmm. But basically, it was just my, I guess, like, my subconscious mind telling you, telling you, like, hey, look out, just be careful, mm-hmm. you know? Now, I want to end with this is... A lot of people, especially in Cape Breton, have talked about this story 
and have speculated about what happened and who was involved and whatnot. But this is the first time I believe you've ever spoke publicly. What has encouraged you now to come out and, and tell your side of the story? Like, what, what, why are you willing to, to share this with, with people? Uh, the main reason is I wanted the truth to be out there and to also let everyone else in the world, regardless of where they are living, what state they're at, what, no matter what, that they get help. If there was a older person in your life or younger person, same age, and there was wrongfully sexual interactions happening, please talk to somebody about it. Don't let it drag on and on because you'll end up like me. <laughs> And I hope for everybody to be happy and and not suffer for such a long period of time. And yeah. Um, what does the future bring for you? Like, what's next uh, for you? <laughs> that I I really hope that my future just consists of being a mother, having a job, and being happy, and that's pretty much it it's all i want for my future and like just staying independent being a happy mother having a good job being able to put a roof over my head and my family's head and and i'll be happy i want to thank you for joining jane doe and i for our discussion surrounding the disturbing story of dale klutzy the clown rancourt in hearing Jane Doe bravely recount the sexual abuse they were subjected to, I feel I have a better understanding of how this situation and others like it are able to occur. A predator who is able to identify those in desperate circumstances, their slow grooming and their tightening control, and ultimate isolation. It's disturbing that these things can happen, but it's even more sickening how often they happen. And with that, I'll wrap up this episode of Nighttime. But before we part, I'm going to give some thanks. First, a big thank you to Jane Doe for bravely sharing their story with me and with the listeners of Nighttime. Jane Doe, what you have endured is so awful and something society must universally denounce and actively prevent. I only hope that your story helps highlight how predators like Dale Rancourt attract and groom their victims. I wish you all the best in your recovery. Next, a big shout out to Monty Data for contributing the music for this episode. It's a piece called Noir Tokyo. And lastly, a massive thanks to everyone who listens to Nighttime, as without your interest and your support, this show would be as pointless as it would be impossible. But that said, keeping the show alive is and has always been an uphill battle. So if you want to help take a bit of weight off the show's back, please consider listening on the premium feed. For about the price of a cup of coffee, you can keep the show alive and give yourself more of it at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And on the topic of the premium feed, let me thank the newest supporters of the show, Brent, BJ, Amy, and the very hostile Nicole. Thank you for going premium. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by simply sharing the episodes on social media and letting like-minded friends know what we're doing here. If you have any story ideas, or if you want to give feedback on the show, you can find me at nighttimepodcast.com slash contact, or on social media. I use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and I'm often live on the Nighttime Podcast YouTube channel. So until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and call out the behaviors associated with sexual predators.
The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.